you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 2. Uh, if you have your smartphone, type in ROM 2.14, verse 14. We are in the middle of a series right now called Who Needs God? And we're looking at some of the, the different arguments that skeptics might have against uh, Christianity. And really we're posing the idea that belief in God actually makes a lot more sense out of the world that you and I find ourselves in. That a lot of the questions that many people are walking around with find their answer, like it or not, in the understanding and the belief in, in God and as he's revealed himself in Scripture. There's something in us that's calling out. And when we deny that, we find ourselves living lives of frustration. That's why Solomon, who wrote uh, in the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, Chapter 311, he said, God's put eternity in man's heart. There's something in us that's calling out for, for more. We are created to long for him and be in relationship with him. And because of that, living a life without him, trying to find identity and purpose and belonging and hope without him, just gets us on a treadmill and makes us tired and, and lonely and this continuing inside feeling of, of brokenness. And it's harmful to us. We can find ourselves on paths trying to find identity and purpose and hope. And it can be harmful to us. It can also be harmful to the people around us and the people that we, we love as we try to create our own identity. So who needs God? The answer is we, we all do, <laughs> would, be, would be my argument. As Paul says in Romans 7, uh, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 7, verse 18, speaking about this, this inner battle within him, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Basically, the part of me that wants to deny God. There's no, there's no good part in there. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So there's the, this disconnect and, and a pain that goes with us when we do not allow God to speak to our reality and our existence. And I would say, I would take it further and say, I'll tell you, I don't need a God who tells me I'm okay the way I am. That God, I have no purpose for that God. I have no use for that kind of God. Because like Paul, I can, I can look at my life and I can say, there's not everything's functioning the way it needs to function. I need to call out to help outside of myself. So God, come in because I'm tired, I'm weary, I need your help. I need the kind of God who looks at me and says, come to me all who are weary and, and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me if you're broken and I will give you rest, I will give you healing. That's the God who understands <laughs> this heart and understands what I need. Today, we're looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. I'm going to invite you to stand, and this is out of respect for God's word. If, uh, if, if you're comfortable to stand, stand. If not, that's fine. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says this. For when Gentiles, those who were who not Jewish, who did not have a history of an understanding of God speaking to them. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law... By nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Even though they don't have all this God speaking to them, like the Old Testament gives us, the Hebrew Scriptures. They show that the works of the law, is, it's written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God of grace, I pray you'd open our hearts and minds to what you want to say to us this morning. And we may come here full of thankfulness. We may come here this morning just saying, Jesus, speak to me. And we might become this morning saying, Jesus, as we heard in that, in that baptism video, chisel me. 
Because you've got something better for me. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to be uncomfortable. But chisel me and make me more, into, more like Jesus. Or we might come here this morning. We don't buy any of this stuff. <laughs> However we arrive here this morning, God, I pray you would soften our hearts and you would speak to us. I pray that you would, those of us who are far from you, you would bring us close to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. When I was about uh, 10 years old, my mom worked at Purdy's. Sweet. Literally. Sweet. And uh, I even worked there for a bit later on. And it was like they had what they called seconds. And it was like you bat. You, you, and it smelled really good when you, when you came in. It had been about 10 a.m. You're like, oh, done. But when I was 10 and my mom was working at Purdy's, they had this wonderful invention called Yard of Chocolate. It was literally a yard of chocolate. It was just a thin box where they lined them all up like this. And there was one occasion where my oldest sister, Michelle, was given one for whatever reason. I don't know what she did to deserve a yard of chocolates, but I knew where it was. It was in her closet. She was hiding it, which was very smart. And I remember on a Saturday morning, I went in there and I took two chocolates and I ate them quickly and I went off for the day. Who would know? Who would know in this yard of chocolates? I just kind of moved the wrappers around a little bit, adjusted a little bit, put it back. The whole day I was, I was down at the Fraser View Golf Course. I grew up in East Vancouver. And me and my buddy Mark were at the Fraser View Golf Course running around, running away from the Rangers. Spent the whole day there. But in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, how, is she going to notice? And, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why did she get those chocolates anyway? I, why, don't I, why don't I get chocolates? I should be allowed to have chocolate. And she should have offered to that I, she should have given me some chocolate. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have had to be pushed this far. I shouldn't have had to break the code. But it's your fault because some, somewhere out there, it's somebody else's fault. And I came home at the end of the day, and my family was all sitting at the table, getting ready to eat dinner. And I came in, I'm taking my shoes off, and my sister says, hey, Brad. And I didn't get, let her get any further. I said, hey, I didn't have any of your chocolate, so don't even ask. <laughs> when I learned I was never going to play poker, I had no abilities for that whatsoever. Now, why such a big, ridiculous response? Because all day, I realized, I didn't have, no one outside had to tell me. I wasn't even told not to take any of her chocolates. But something inside me was saying, you shouldn't have done that. And so I had to come up with all these excuses why, even though it was wrong, I had a good reason to not obey that rule. So I should have got chocolate. Why don't I deserve chocolates? And you should have offered. See what you guys did to make me break this code that's placed inside me? Our current state, when it comes to moral standing in our culture, is all over the map. It is all over the map. It is loud, <laughs> but it is lacking in any really real solidity and substance. And it's confusing and it's overwhelming. We live in a time of moral contradiction all over the map. So we live in a time when the Me Too movement, which has been going on for the last year, where light is being shone on the mistreatment of women by men in power, asking for sexual favors in the workplace, the Hollywood casting couch, men are rightly being called on to answer for this kind of behavior. At the same time, the book Fifty Shades of Grey, a book that glorifies the sexual domination of a woman by a rich man who can do as he pleases, is the largest, highest, fastest selling book among women. 
We live in a time when a pastor in his early 20s steps down because he got in a relationship with a 17-year-old girl and the outside world's pointing saying, how could you do something like that? At the same time, in Hollywood, a movie called Call Me By My Name is a movie telling a story of a relationship between an underage boy and a man in his 20s, and that's celebrated. There is a militant call today, we live in a time, when there is a militant call for tolerance that is dramatically intolerant, right? Where pastors and Christians and other religious people and professors who have an opinion against the cultural norm are shunned and lose tenure and are shunned out of community. And we are left wondering, in the middle of all this, is there anywhere we can find consistency? Is is a consistent morality across the board even possible? Is God the answer, which we would pose, is God the answer to finding solid moral ground in a very windy cultural environment? And many of us would would probably find ourselves agreeing as we see it out in the world with Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky, I worked on it all week, (laughs) who wrote, without God, everything is permitted. One can do anything without God. I want to propose three things to you that I'd like us to reflect on this morning. And the first is this, kind of in a pushback to Dostoevsky, to be honest, is the fact that you can be good without recognizing God. You can be good without recognizing God. Paul says, hey, listen, even if you're, you're not among those who call themselves uh, followers of God, followers of Jesus, who believe in the words that are laid out in scriptures, you still know good from bad. You still know right from wrong. The fact is, we know many good people who are not Christ followers. In fact, some of them are a lot better than Christ followers, maybe more accepting in some ways. And Dostoevsky here is he's actually not saying that atheists can't be good. He's just saying they don't have any good reason to be. Right? There's no real obligation to be good without God. Yet there's something within that they are drawn to when it comes to morality. So there can be moral feelings and convictions without God. We see them everywhere. There are many people in your life who are good people who would say they are atheists. We, we all know that we're not going to walk out of here, walk out and see people coming off the sky train, like, who, who are atheists, and because they weren't in church this morning, they're like pushing women in, into, into traffic and kicking puppies. Like, it's, it's not going to happen because they don't believe in God. We don't just see everything's just falling apart uh, like that. But here's the thing, is if we, if we were to ask the question, why should I be moral without God? We're really at the loss of a good answer to that question. Why should we be good? Why should we be moral? So that would be my second point. You cannot explain good without God. Not, not accurately. There's a lot of holes. Paul says when you aim towards right living or, or struggle with, with moral question, that, that points to a law giver. You show that the law is written on your hearts. And when you don't recognize a, a fundamental law giver, right and wrong are in danger of becoming options. And we see that, right? That they can become options when we we don't recognize that there is actually fundamentally something that's written inside our hearts. A world without ultimate truth or or a moral lawgiver is on on shifting uncertain ground when it comes to morality, as I as I showed in some of those examples, because it's it's easily changed in, in, in its reasoning easily changes in depending on how we feel. If we don't recognize a fundamental lawgiver, a fundamental morality. We live in what Charles Taylor, a fantastic uh, moral philosopher, 
He calls it a time of extraordinary inarticulacy. Extraordinary inarticulacy, which he describes as a time when moral positions are not in any way grounded in reason or the nature of things, but are ultimately just adopted by each of us because we find ourselves drawn to them. They make us feel right. In which case, we're just left in basically saying, I have a feeling that this is wrong, and I want you to follow my feeling rather than your feeling. That's all we're left with. Who's to say what makes something good for society unless you have been given an idea of what good is? Why should we care about what's good for society? If we believe, as the current secular view does, that that we come from apes, we die like dogs, and there's no, no outside play in that, who cares about obligation? Obligation doesn't even make sense. In fact, obligation is a dangerous word for an atheist because it implies you're answering to somebody. It implies, but that's a word you'll hear. Well, we're obliged to do this kind of stuff. Why? Without God, why? So where does this obligation come from? What is it that, that calls us to live a certain way and nags us when we do not and makes us yell at our sister before she's even accused us of anything? Well, as Paul wrote, as Christianity teaches, there, there's something in us placed there by God that gives us a compass for morality that calls out from within. Good is God's gift to us. Goodness, morality is God's gift to us. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. They, they use this inside law to figure out whether they're justified or, or they, they should confess. It's written. And if they're written, then there must be an author. Who wrote? Who wrote this law? There's something placed in us by God that convicts and it, it pushes us and it, and it works on us. There's, there, there's something stirred in us when we see something good and there's something that hurts in us when we see something wrong. For those of us who, who are older, when we think back to Mother Teresa, when we think of Princess Diana who was royalty but stooped down to those who were sick and, and touched, who were deemed the untouchables, there's something that's stirred in us. Something that's stirred in us when we remember Martin Luther King Jr. who... who who fought courageously for justice in the segregated South. There's something in us that says, yes, that, that is right. And then on the flip side, there's something inside us, inside our makeup that makes our heart cringe at the atrocities when we think back of Nazi Germany, the, the Rwandan genocide. And that goes beyond opinion. There's a hurt and a brokenness when we watch the news and hear of horrible acts. And that those feelings have no proper place in a closed, godless universe. There's no reason those things should bother us. And I'll tell you, if, if someone has the guts to look at all those horrible situations and, and, and say that, that we are just morally neutral people, they will have some very thin ice that they are standing on. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes truly that morality is fluid and changes. We could say it, but nobody really believes that. Nobody lives that way. It would be impossible to do so. A, a, a secular moral philosopher who teaches that morality is relative is still going to feel something immoral has happened when they go out to the college parking lot and her car has been stolen. They're still going to call out for justice. The person who believes there is no ultimate truth is still going to believe that an injustice has been done when they're cut off in traffic. And when you honk, they give you the finger. It was your fault. What would we be pointing to in such a claim? 
of injustice. C.S. Lewis would say that the only reason anyone could judge something as wrong is because we have a sense of what is right. He says, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has an idea of a straight line. Right? If we sense that something is unjust, we are suggesting that there is such thing as just. If, if we say that something is wrong, we are implying that there is something out there telling me what is right. If we don't see this as, as given by something outside ourselves, we have a dilemma. Because then it just moves around inside us, and it depends on the day and how we feel when we woke up. But a Christian, Orthodox Christianity, doesn't have that dilemma. Christianity makes the claim that this morality has been placed in us and pointed out to us. And it's not that the Ten Commandments showed up and, and nobody could identify with them. It's not that they pointed out things that, we, that people didn't already understand, although these days you might question that. But it confirms that the morality that we, we aim to live out, whether we recognize it or not, comes from somewhere and is affirmed by, by the one who created us in his image with the knowledge of good and evil. And there's chaos when we think we can live outside of that truth. As God said through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Who call evil good. Do you remember when the, the good guys in movies... Well, you, none of us remember, but they used to wear white hats and a white outfit. So, oh, good guys. Those are the good guys. And the villain stepped into town with a black cowboy hat and a black outfit. Today, the heroes of movies, they would never have been heroes of movies 40 years ago. They're the guys that are killing everybody. These are now the people that are the heroes of the movie because they throw out a few quick jokes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Hey, but without God, that's all permissible. We can change things however we want, but we won't live in a very <laughs> safe society. It's the natural path of morality that, that, that is based on preference and not a deeper truth that can make us believe that darkness is light and light is darkness. In fact, Today, any claim to even believe in a truth is considered darkness. For you to say that you have, you have a truth that we all ought to live by, that's considered a dark claim today in our culture. This, this came to, uh, to kind of a, a head this last couple weeks in Alberta. The last few weeks, the Alberta Ministry of Education has challenged all the schools in the district to provide, or in the province, to to provide uh, documents to show how they are going to ensure and implement safe and caring school environments. So schools were asked to create these documents and send them in, and the, the Ministry of Education will look over them. And every Christian school that sent them in was sent them back because they made truth claims. So the documents produced by Christian schools across the province started like this. This is quoting one of the actual documents. They were, they've all been made public. So this is one of the Christian schools. It says, We appreciate Alberta education's concern for the safety and well-being of Alberta students. As educators, we share the goal of providing safe, respectful environment for the students, staff, and community members. Further, as educators in a Christian school, it's our conviction based on God's word recorded in the Holy Bible that all human life, all human life is inestimable, has inestimable value inestimable value, and therefore that everyone should be treated with care, respect at all times. That sounds good. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Something wrong with that. However, 
Then the document went on, and this is where the ministry of education had some issues. Because Christian educators across the province explained that their conviction of the value of every person, regardless of background, ethnicity, identity, is based on the truth of Scripture. And because of that, all of the documents were rejected. They were all sent back. Everywhere the word truth was used, a yellow highlighter just marked the word truth. And I see all, I see all the teachers going, I can't remember this. <laughs> without, without connection to the context, just truth. Truth is, truth of, truth. Didn't matter what the rest of it said. You cannot make a truth claim. And this is what they said. It said, everywhere the word truth was highlighted in yellow and requested to be changed because, and this is a quote, that language assumes alternate viewpoints are not equally legitimate, which is disrespectful of diversity. And without any context, they marked them all and said, take this word out. I know, it's how we all feel about it. Now, there's a few problems. <laughs> Maybe you can't name the problems right away, but there's a few problems with this way of looking at it. And it highlights the way many deal with truth and morality. But the idea of truth as relative and all truth as equal is not practical, it's not true, and it's inconsistent. It's not practical, it's not true, and it's inconsistent. First, it's not practical. No society can live long if they don't claim that one truth is greater than another. Two plus two does not equal five, and it will never equal five. Otherwise, math is done. In morality, the same thing takes place. It's not helpful to us to assume that there are no truth claims above others. Views that, pro views that promote life and flourishing are good. Those that are destructive cannot be considered on equal value. It just it doesn't work that way. Secondly, it's not true. No sober person would suggest that my truth claim that, that we should all be kicking puppies for no reason is just as valid as your truth claim that that's a really bad thing and you shouldn't do that. One of them's right. The other one is wrong. Now, if we were talking about cats, that's called a moral dilemma. That's a different, that's a different, they struggle with that kind of stuff in universities. So it's not true. And it's, it's inconsistent. The minute the Ministry of Education, catch this, because this is very common. You will catch this all week in different areas of moral debate. The minute the Ministry of Education of Alberta said you cannot make a truth claim because to do so, and I quote, assumes alternate viewpoints are not equally legitimate, which is disrespectful of diversity, in doing so, they made a truth claim that assumed alternate viewpoints are not equally legitimate, which is disrespectful to diversity. It's inconsistent. Whenever someone suggests to you that there are no absolutes when it comes to truth claims, there's a very simple question to ask them. Are you absolutely sure? It's inconsistent. Do you absolutely believe that? That there are absolutely no truth claims? No one can live in a world where there are no fundamental moral beliefs that guide us. It's true in science, it's true in morality. Scripture, faith, answers the underlying question that every human heart is asking. We are all asking, how ought we to live? How ought we to live to, to, to live out our purpose, our telos? How are we to, li to, live, to, to live a life of hope and flourishing? Not just for myself. Oh, dare we speak about other people <laughs> and our community. 
How ought we to live? Without God, that is a very confusing, in fact, it's a nonsensical question, because who are we asking? How ought we to live? What do you mean, how ought we to live? That only makes sense if you bring an outside factor in. Because without God, there is no ought. All other world religions say that you need to seek out God, seek out a higher plane, work for enlightenment, or a secular view says you create it yourself. That's a, that's a heavy burden. Christianity says that God sought us out. God did not leave us in the dirt to figure it out on our own. He revealed himself to us through creation, through scripture. He stepped into the, the dirt of humanity in the person of Jesus Christ and made himself known to us. The reason so many times when, when people realize Jesus was divine, that they would come to him and ask him questions about the law is because we've got God right here. How ought we to live? And they would come to him with question upon question upon question about how to live the right life, the life that has eternal significance. In Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40, someone approaches Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, this is, this is a great, massive statement. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Whenever Jesus says all the law and prophets, he means all of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew scriptures. I love that because I, am, I have a horrible memory. So if I want to sum, out, sum up all that God has said, this is how you ought to live, put God first and love everybody else as you would love yourself. Give it to me simple, God. That's the way I need it. Jesus said, you want to live a life that brings joy and flourishing? Love God and love your neighbor. Everything recorded in Scripture, everything that, that God, the law, the law giver, the arbiter of morality says, love God first and others second, and to the degree that you love and obey God will be the degree and the strength of the love that you have for each other. That only comes in recognizing the law that's been placed on our hearts by a loving Father. So the question for you and I this morning is, is where are we getting our counsel from? Please let it not be Facebook. For the sake of... Literally, of all that is holy, <laughs> let it not be Facebook, where opinions, man, for it not having a sound, it's the loudest place to listen to people's opinions. And they get louder and louder and louder, not necessarily with more basis and more facts. Where do we find our counsel, our compass? How do we orient ourselves? Where do we find our foundation in the midst of moral shifty ground or do we find ourselves just going with it are we are we like a wind sock just wherever the wind blows we'll find very difficult to live a life that way where we do not have our feet solidly placed on the ground or do we find a solid rock in the midst of a moral storm because our morality is firmly founded in the god who created us who who loves us without question the, the ultimate lawgiver who knows our hearts and how we were made to function, how we were made to flourish, that is where we find rest. When all these things come sweeping over, many of us would say personal, ourselves personally, if we're people of faith, Christ followers, sweeping over the church, being shoved out of public domain, 
Where do we find solid ground in that? In submitting to God. And that might seem crazy. It might seem crazy to kind of sound like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who just goes on forever about how awesome the law of God is. Like, seriously? Who, who's writing that down? Like, who's waking up in the morning going, man, I like the 10, but do you got another one in the back pocket? I, I, love, the, I love your commands. Just give me more commands. I'm just eating these up. Who lives like that? Well, the person who knows that true life is found in the loving lawgiver who gives us solidity and joy and knows how you and I are going to flourish in life. Doesn't come from yelling out our opinion. Comes from a submission to the author of life and the lawgiver who judges the secrets of men, Paul says, and offers the way of life through his son, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, submitted himself to the law of man to give himself for us to take on our sin, to take on our broken morality and pay the price for it. Jesus says, you want, you want to know truth? When you know me, you know truth. And by the way, that truth will set you free. That's where freedom lies. Freedom from all the rhetoric, the loud voices, the shifting moral climate. It comes in a submission to the, to the person who is truth. And as Paul said in, in Romans 7, it's not just out there somewhere, it's happening right here. It's, it's every morning, it's, it's every debate I have, not just with other people, it's within my own soul where I'm battling. And Paul, in the middle of this, this battle that he's so honest about, I, I have the will to do what is right, but I can't carry it on. It's like this, these two things fighting within me. Who will save me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. That is where we find our center in the middle of a storm. Not just the storm on Facebook, not just the storm in the news, but the storm you and I walk with daily. He is the, he is the God of all creation. He is the God who calls on the storm to settle. And he does that within us as well. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you are a God who reveals himself who through the prophets, who through reveal, the revealed words of Scripture, but ultimately through your Son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and walked among us, who lived a perfect life and laid down that perfect life for us. Jesus, in you we find our fullest humanity, we find our fullest identity, and it can be so easy for us to be dragged to the side to get our, our vision off you, and join a tribe and, and, and join an identity group. Jesus, we want to solely find our purpose, our identity, our meaning, our hope in you. So find your home in our hearts and our minds this morning. There are many in the church, many who are Christ followers, who think that we are in a time where we just cannot make it through and still be a healthy church. May we be reminded that Jesus, you have established your church. The gates of hell shall not prevail. We are not on the defense. We are marching forward because we know where this story goes. We know that one day you will return and you will put all things right. And everything that's in discord in our hearts, 
everything that's in discord in our world where there is injustice and it's called justice, where there is darkness and it's called light, where there is bitterness and it's called sweet, you will put all of it right. And so we don't want to wait for that. We want to align with you now and we want to be instruments of that redemption in our own lives, in our families' lives, and in our community and in our world. And so this morning we submit to your reign. If you need to chisel at us this morning, chisel at us. If you need to pry our fingers off things that, we, that have become a part of our identity, whatever that is, pry those fingers off. We, we, we have nothing but you, Jesus. There's no pursuit worth it. But you are worth our very lives because you gave up your very life for us. Speak to us this day. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us the courage to live out the law that you have placed in our hearts. It is a good law and it brings life. We pray this in Jesus' name.